200 milliseconds, this is like a quarter of the circumference of the world at the speed of light. So the speed of light starts to become a problem. The latest consolidation wave is creating massive faceless companies where cultures clash. Instead of recording and dubbing, you essentially just type. Welcome to SlaterPod 68. Hi, Esther. Hey, Florian. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I am very well. Yes. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Spence Green, the CEO of Lilt. Lilt.com. Lilt. So Lilt's one of the... Uh, world's leading uh, AI agencies in the in the language industry. Let's use that term, AI agency. Mm -hmm. uh, started six, seven years ago, uh, you know, f as a pure technology company, um, and now built like a major company around it and raised a ton of money from VCs, including Sequoia and Redpoint. You know, we had Tom Tungush from Redpoint at yeah. our Slatercon San Francisco conference, the second, the penultimate IRL conference <laughs> we had. So, Pre-COVID, yeah. Pre-COVID. <laughs> and yeah, Spence actually uh, was our at our very first IRL SlaterCon as a speaker in, in London back in, I think it was 2017, somewhere oh, in, nice. uh, yeah, around Old Street. Today, we will talk about the PRO Act in the US. And just before this podcast, we're trying to wrap our head around it. So pardon uh, all the US, uh, the US listeners, pardon us if we don't fully get it, but we're trying just to bring it up as a, you know, as a news item. And hopefully uh, you could take some of it uh, away and, and read the article, etc. It does, it is have, have probably going to have an impact on the language industry. Mm. Staying in the US, TransPerfect uh, shared their quarterly results. I uh, want to take another detour into the voice synthesis and, and, and avatar space with Synthesia uh, that just raised more money. And then we're, uh, you're going to talk a little bit about media localization as well. Yeah. Some, some interesting things there. And frank statements, um, bold statements. Mm -hmm. Hey, so if you haven't registered for SlaterCon Remote, we got three weeks left. And still a lot of lot to do from our side, but we're getting ready, and it's uh, yeah, it's an exciting program. So uh, you know, looking forward to it. Register, and this may be one of the few, the last few free podcasts. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, before, <laughs> <laughs> before, uh, before just today, I, I learned that Apple yesterday launched a new podcast, uh, or they're about to launch a new podcast subscription service. And, and just oh, okay. generally re redoing the podcast platform. Yeah, did you hear about this? No. So oh, yesterday because they had a big launch, didn't they? That I didn't watch, yeah. but I was aware of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had one of their launches. They launched like a new IMAX. Like I think the first yeah. set of IMAX in ten years. Like super flat. It's crazy. They're like, like mm. they're flatter than my monitor, and it's an entire computer inside. So it's it looked they look pretty good. Uh, but and then some iPad Pros and you know just you know re redoing the lineup. But they also uh, they're launching or they're redesigning the entire podcast platform. I heard right mm -hmm. now it's kind of even with Spotify as in terms of uh, user uh, numbers. So they're relaunching the entire podcast platform. And I did a bit of research into this. So they're now going to uh, launch premium subscriptions, so you can actually get paid for podcasts. So because right now podcasts are on a kind of uh, open network, like open source RSS feed. So, you know, mm -hmm. we plug the podcast in and then it goes to all these platforms for free, right? But mm. uh, now Apple's going to offer us and other creators uh, the opportunity to make money. So you can you can sell your podcast or maybe parts of it or add some, you know, paid versions of it with, uh, you know, proprietary, well, stuff that's just gated. I know it's podcast talk, but it's interesting. So... Let's see where this goes. We'll 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 maybe try it out. Could be part of Slater Pro. So as Slater Pro okay. subscribers, you know, you also get uh, you get the extended version <laughs> with a couple more interesting stories. Uh, anyways, so what's going on with Transperfect Tester? Just highlights. What were yeah, the results? Well, a lot. It sounds like they've been busy in the first quarter of 2021. So since the new year. Um, their Q1 revenues said to the end of March uh, 2021 were in excess of $230 million. Nice. It's a lot. Um, and that is an increase of approximately, well, just over 20%, 21%, or 
40 million dollars so they grew by 40 million dollars they grew by one mid-sized challenge leader (laughs) lsp in one quarter in one quarter yeah well what they make in one quarter is bigger than like the i don't know 10th largest lsp so I think this is this is confirming our hypothesis of the boom, right? We first floated last week uh, that uh, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're getting into a boom here. I mean, like a 21% growth organically, nonetheless, you know, in one quarter. That That's strong. That's super strong. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. maybe last year they had a bit of a, maybe a slower, uh, it was probably slowing down towards the end of the quarter because of COVID already, but, uh, but still mm-hmm. 21%, that's, that's, that's great. And again, it's all organic. They didn't buy any companies. So they mentioned that they, they were busy on the tech side. They inc- improved some of the user interface on Global Link, their TMS, uh, and their yeah. data annotation platform, data, data force, which apparently uh, grew, grew a lot in 2020. So we mentioned this a couple of times, like they're competing with the likes of Appen and Scale AI and all these other companies out there, right? Um, mm. what else grew? Did they mention specific yeah, verticals as well? They did. Yeah. They, they called out a couple of standout business units. So they said gaming and media localization in particular, as well as the ones you mentioned, the AI data. Um, and then they said, uh, which is sounds like good news for not just TransPerfect, but the rest of the industry, that on a sector basis, travel and tourism are seem to be recovering. Um, and for TransPerfect, um, Phil Shaw said that that's encouraging because it's a big practice area for them. Um, and he also said that retail and consumer product sectors are growing as well. So, and I think their their tech, mm. their license part. So that's the subscriptions. Uh, I don't know what you call it. Maybe because it's bigger. It's not like you can't. It's not a browser based. But like all of the the global link products mm-hmm. are, are. I mean, these are licenses, right? These are somewhat heavy enterprise grade technologies. So that that also did well, which is super mm. profitable for them, of course. I mean, the margins are a lot higher on pieces of software. Uh, so if I remember correctly. Um, from the whole legal thing, they did disclose yeah. once the size, I think it was in, what was it, like four, three, 30, 40 million dollars annual recurring revenue from, from technology that must have grown by now to maybe, mm-hmm. you know, 10, 20 more. So very, uh, very good business for them. I mean, competing with all of the TMSs that are out there. So maybe sometimes we, we kind of forget about TransPerfect's Global Link because it's not a standalone <laughs> product out there doing its own marketing, but um, yeah. certainly one of the biggest ones, if not the biggest ones in the space. Mm. Um, yeah. And so travel retail, but who's traveling? Is anybody traveling? I mean, I guess in the US, a lot of people are traveling, but that shouldn't generate too much translation demand. I mean, who else is traveling? I'm not Who traveling. Else is traveling, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's what we were saying last week that it's in anticipation of people booking holidays and wanting to travel. Um, yeah, those kind of I w- things. I wonder when things open up, like for real. Mm. Like it feels probably a lot better now in the UK. It feels quite okay here, but like it when, does. When but things- then I heard somebody on on the news today saying that they're expecting some kind of summer surge, which just put like the fear of God into me. <laughs> Summer search with mutant viruses and all of this I stuff. Know, I don't I know. know. Just as we're like enjoying the enjoying the bars and pubs and restaurants and everything else opening up. Nah, Gets all shut down again. But not gonna happen. We shall see. Anyway, hot take. Uh super strong results from uh Transperfect kind of bodes well for RWS that are set to announce on Thursday, we're recording this on a Wednesday, so by the time you listen to this, it's uh, you, you, you can check RWS's results. Kind of bodes well. I mean, if TransPerfect mm. did so well, then I'm sure that um, S, uh, RWS will do well as RWS well. RWS is just and, a trading update, though, isn't it? It's not the full set of results, I think. That no, expecting. but you know, it's not that TransPerfect gives us any profitability figures. So, uh, so this is yeah. the RWS's figures are going to be more detailed than TransPerfect's one. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so a lot of things coming together here. And I think that super cycle boom theory is starting to play out in front of our very eyes. <laughs> but uh, in the US, more yeah. legislation. So let's try to unpack this just short. What's going on and how does it impact the language industry? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think in short, we don't know how it's going to react, uh, how it's going to impact on the language industry, but it's another piece of 
potential legislation, as as you said, or more accurately, an amendment to an existing legislation. Um, so this is, as you said, called the PRO Act. Um, and the news piece, if you like, is that on the 6th of March of this year, House Democrats in the US passed the Protecting the Right to Organize, or the PRO Act, an amendment to existing legislation, which is intended to make um, organization of unions and collective bargaining easier for employees. But I think it all comes back to this central question of what does it mean to be an employee and what rights and flexibilities do you have if you're an employee versus not? Mm. Um, yeah, so we'll look at it, I think, as it as it kind of unfolds. But as usual, I think the... Um, the association, the ALC um, of language companies there in, in the US, I mean, they're obviously paying close attention to what happens, probably busy analyzing some of what it's going to mean as well. Um, but I mean, they're effectively a lobbying, I think, at the moment for workable and clear exemptions to this um, PRO Act um, amendment for the knowledge-based industries. So a sort of a similar line, I think, as they were taking when it came um, to the AB5, um, the gig worker um, sort of legislation that was was going on in California a couple of years ago. How is that in the UK? Didn't you guys have some similar legislation kind of basically trying to force companies like Uber to treat their uh, drivers better? And that, that did that have an impact on services jobs or like professional yeah. services jobs? <sighs> You don't know? It's, I think, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say too much because I, I think it's all very fine and I'm not entirely certain of the information. But I know that there was a case involving Uber quite recently where Uber has been, um, I think, forced to treat their workers slightly differently. Um, in terms of having a wider impact uh, on services, I don't think that's going to happen immediately. I think we're kind of busy with the. Uh, other things <laughs> as in I don't think there's the appetite there's not the political appetite I don't think to go and overhaul what essentially would be like the tax system um, and I think there was that's already sort of been looked at I think three or four maybe five years ago got um, it okay yeah. well certainly something to keep an eye on uh, especially now that you have like a democratic um, house senate and the presidency right so maybe if they really push they could get this through but who knows I, I don't no, uh, but mm. there's always these complexities around the U.S. system. Moving on to something also super complex, but which seems less, uh, which which I want to make less complex for the user is mm. synthesia. I always struggle pronouncing this uh, with the mm -hmm. the th there. So that is this uh, the synthetic video avatar startup in the UK, which we know from this Beckham video where like Beckham was speaking in like 10 languages and the lips were uh, were moving uh, correctly, right? The lip movement uh, you know, mm. goes back to the discussion we had with, with Paper Cup last week. Uh, so they raised some money. They raised another 12.5 million. And if you really go into it, it's just, it's so interesting. And and I, I mean, on, on many, many levels, but we obviously want to... Um, kind of unpack the language component here. Mm. So in a nutshell, again, you get you you can create very easily, you can create an avatar and that you can choose from like a set of avatars, maybe 10. Um, and you, you instead of recording and dubbing, you essentially just type the content or whatever copy mm -hmm. paste, right? And then that avatar looks kind of lifelike, would actually speak in, you know, selection of like 40 languages what you're punching in in a synthetic voice and the lip movements would be um would be you know lifelike in a sense it would look uh look really real mm. and apparently i mean there's this whole kind of division pitch around we what I'm, we read the venture beat article uh, and we're gonna yeah i think we sent him a couple of questions as well so by the time this comes mm -hmm. out we probably have our own piece um hopefully so <laughs> There's this whole kind of grander pitch around it, but but for now, I think they're getting a lot of interest from 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 enterprises for things like um, like customer service stuff, and uh, you know, kind of support things and maybe kind of trial ad campaigns, things like that. And uh, they said they've been overwhelmed by the response in the last six months since they mm -hmm. launched in beta, and they have now thousands of users, yada yada. So a lot of traction, and. Just to 
again, belabor that point for a second. You don't, I mean, you, 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 you can translate it, right? I mean, so you can MT it, but if, if you don't translate it, you can just basically put the multilingual content into the system and then you have that avatar speak um, in, in those, you know, in the number of languages that you want and it's, it's already in a sense localized. So what it does is it really does away with all of this infrastructure around recording and having actors and, and that really uh, very heavy infrastructure. And that, I think that's also uh, one of their pitches. Let me just try to find that quote. Oh yeah, so they're saying today video production is costly, complex, and unscalable. It requires mm. studios, actors, cameras, and post-production. It's an incredibly long and multidisciplinary process rooted in physical space and sensors. And well, they do away with all of this, right? Now, do people want to look at an avatar, which kind of s still looks slightly fake? Uh, not, mm. not necessarily in all <laughs> in in all contexts, but in many, maybe they do. Maybe they don't care, right? I really so, liked. Um, sorry to jump in, but they uh, please jump in. I'm rambling. They apparently, so. I think they said in the press release they were responsible for this advert for Just Eat. You know, like a food delivery service that was okay. um, had a Snoop Dogg in it. It doesn't have any language component. I just really, <laughs> I just really like that advert. But so like they've Snoop like effectively Dog. done an avatar of like Snoop Dogg singing. Oh. In but, in the just okay. eat ad, uh, advert, yeah, I really like it. <laughs> so, hang on, that's their advert. <laughs> is, I think that... they said in the press release, yeah, that they'd work, they'd like collaborated on it or worked on it. Um, okay, I need I need to double check. But well, yeah, they're it, it they're was... good at marketing. Snoop Dogg, Beckham. Uh, well, yeah, you know, and I think they maybe... said advertising was obviously one of the use cases for you know for this kind of video AI video generation. I think they're kind of calling it at the high level. Yeah, like. Uh... Yeah, but they, their own marketing is good because, I mean, yeah, again, Snoop Dogg, Beckham. Now, I guess, you know, also that's that's all like 90s references. So maybe next would be more millennial and Gen Z focused. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so uh, deep fake concerns, just to close on that. Obviously, there's deep fake concerns, right? I mean, if you can do that, you can mm. do the whole, I think we spoke about, um, what was it, uh, Tom Cruise? You know, more nineties or late eighties. Uh, that 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 deep fake. Video. I'm gonna have to make the point that some of these people are timeless. I think you know, not yeah. necessarily Tom Cruise. Well, uh, Snoop Dogg, I think, has got a certain level of longevity, but without being too much of a cultural commentator, <laughs> I'll leave it there. Uh, this very nineties Snoop Dogg, right? I mean, obviously, <laughs> kept kept. He's got a Netflix, so he's got a Netflix uh, series. So you know, he can't be that uh, can't be that dated. Me Maybe the Netflix series is going to be localized by Zoo Digital. Mm. How are yes. they doing? <laughs> I'm trying to segue. I know, I know. Zoo Digital, yes. Thank you for the prompt. Uh, Zoo Digital, yes. So they are a media localization company, as we know, uh, based in the UK. Um, so they're listed also on the London Stock Exchange. And we had some uh, forecasts coming out of Zoo Digital this week. Um, so they actually raised their forecast uh, for the financial year, which ends or ended at the end of March uh, 2021. Um, and they raised their expectations by 1.5 million US dollars. So they'd previously said they were expecting full year revenues of around or well, of at least 38 million dollars, I think was the was how they phrased it originally. Um, and they have since recently raised it to 39.5 million US dollars. So and that's they said the, EBITDA. Hmm? No, that's TransPerfect's growth in one quarter. So they need to do some catch up. No, just kidding. Uh, Good, good, good result. It's, and EBITDA. yeah, I mean, it's something, oh, but over last year, they they would, I mean, I think they would have grown like 33% zoo. So it's, you know, it's a considerable growth there for Absolutely, them. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and they said EBITDA is expected to be four and a half million US dollars, which apparently is more than double the year before. So it's all sounding quite positive there. Um, yeah, that's and good. Said, and, you know, since they're in this uh, cloud dubbing space, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if that, that growth can continue. And it's it's more tech driven, so it's uh, it's it's very this can double or triple quite easily. So yeah, I mean, and they're also saying that I think generally in the market is is picking up as new title productions are, are coming back, so filming's able to you know happen again after the lockdowns in Hollywood. Um, and they also said that the first quarter of the financial year, so that is just the few weeks of April that they would have had, um, has also started well. So good, I think, positive outlook for them for, for the year, which is good. 
And somebody who wants to cloud their positive outlook is Mr. Bjorn Livergren. Maybe yeah. a new company. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think this is this is super interesting. I mean, and for anybody who's kind of um well, who was familiar with BTI Studios or has kind of followed the what's the consolidation that's been happening in the media localization space with a keen eye, um, Bjorn uh, may well have been a name that you will have been familiar with from from that um, because he was the founder um, of BTI Studios and he was also the company's CEO for more than two decades. Um, BTI in 2019, people might remember, was um, merged with IUNO Media Group. Um, so Bjorn had sort of extensive, extensive experience leading a media localization company. Um, and he's now setting out with two of um, his two former execs from BTI Studios to co-found a new company called Link Media. So apparently it was in the works. It's been in the works for nearly a year now, but it was the company officially launched, I think, in March um, 2021. Um, but yeah, these were the kind of some of the, the punchy statements that, that I think you were talking about. Florian, where he's talking about sort of the why, you know, why now is a good time to be um, starting out in media localization. Uh, so he said, Bjorn said he thinks the time is ideal right now. Um, and I think they're really kind of targeting what they're saying is a boutique service. Um, and kind of saying that the consolidate, well, I'll just read the quote. The latest consolidation wave is creating massive faceless companies where cultures clash and there's a risk for more focus on corporate politics. Um, nice and passive he said the com aggressive comment there, Bjorn. <laughs> well, I, you know, I asked and he answered. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, he's saying that he wants to provide uh, the company to provide a boutique style service that works closely with clients on a local basis. I think it's very much this kind of, you know, customer led, um, premium, uh, very much like hand holding clients being led by clients, uh, which I think the larger companies would say they also do. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, it's kind of putting that for them at the, at the forefront. Um, so he really must but, love this industry coming back after two decades, BTI is selling it yeah. I and mean, he could retire on some island somewhere and just, you know, look into the distance. Yeah, I, th I think the title was something like not done with localization yet, because I think what he had said to us is that all three of the, the founders now, you know, they had been, you know, very successful execs at BTI Studios, but they kind of got together and decided that actually, you know, that they weren't quite finished. <laughs> there was more to be done. So they've... Uh, They've launched, which is great. Um, and they also, well, raised a seed, a seed round, a small seed round that was participated in by the founders. So Yeah, and some, yeah. some outside guys. All right, well, let's move over to Spence, who is in the middle of his, uh, I guess, first, uh, I don't know, the first entrepreneurial journey after, what, f five, six years. So uh, mm. really looking forward to talking to Spence and learning more about what's going on at Lilt, what they're doing, how they're growing, and uh, learn a bit more about the technology, which I, I, I got to be honest, I was a, f <clears throat> I was a fan of, of, of the technology when I first started using it. Um, yeah. And I will try to get maybe, maybe uh, Spence can give me uh, an account back because they, you know, when they... They um, withdrew your... your Account. Well, they just, you know, they basically, um, as we said, they, they're, they're now a services company. So yeah. it, it was no longer um, I remember. I remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. AI agency slash tech enabled services company. All right. Over to Spence in a second. See you soon. And welcome back. Welcome back here with a very special guest today. We've got Spence Green, the CEO of Lil, definitely one of the language industry's most exciting companies on the pod. Hi, Spence. Hi, Florian. How are you? Very good. Uh, where in the world does this podcast find you? I'm in Berkeley, California. There you go. I think last time, or, or actually the one time we met, we were in Palo Alto. I think that was like in, I don't know, 2017. So, not Well, we too... first met in Dublin. If you'll recall, I think we were at Loke World That's or right. something like this. That's right, Loke World, and then Palo Alto, yeah, and then uh, yeah, you you were at our conference. So, 
<clears throat> so when you first covered Lil back in 2016, uh, we we called you a little a company to watch. So th there's quite a bit of a quite a bit of a history in between. So tell us just a bit more about your background. What brought you into the translation localization tech space? Uh, well, my background and my co-founder's background as well. We're both uh, researchers. Uh, we both worked on um, machine translation, and we met working on Google Translate. And I think. For both of us, the motivation for working on language translation was, uh, I think the opportunity to have impact in the world. Um, and specifically in the, in the area of information access and that language presents a barrier opportunity for a lot of people that don't speak English. And, um, so both of us went to grad school to work on that problem. And, um, I think how we sort of came to, think about localization was more um, machine translation systems can give you a prediction, but they can't tell you whether they're right. And so uh, in settings where you need to know whether the translation is correct, which is the sort of the business case or, or book publishing, which is originally what we were thinking about, uh, we started to think about how could we um, uh, use machines that are scalable and efficient uh, to make it possible for there to be more information available in the world um, that right now is mostly translated by people. And, and so that was the original, you know, sort of thinking behind um, going down this path, which eventually led to a company. Got it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's super interesting and hi, I don't think we have met in person. So uh, thanks. It's nice, nice to be talking to you. And thanks for joining us. Yeah, um, but yeah, I thought that, uh, yeah, the sort of interesting aspect and that there are many um, when it comes to Lilt, but is thinking about this kind of tech enabled language services, uh, or I think that as the term is kind of being popularized, the AI agency, which I think we'll talk a bit more about later, but perhaps you can share a bit more around that tech piece as it pertains to Lilt and how it went from this kind of vision uh, that you described through to implementation at scale. Well, originally, um, the, you know, within, within the academic context, uh, what we build is called an interactive machine translation system. So this is a machine translation system that, um, is really designed for interaction with a human being. And this idea is very old. It goes back to the late sixties. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a thread of research that had sort of, um, had, periods where people worked on it and and then when periods when people didn't work on it very much and um nobody was really working on it certainly in the early well that's false uh philip kuhn uh who you probably know um he was yeah. working on it kind of as a side project in the late 2000s and early 2010s and um when i was at google uh i was getting to know franz Och, and Franz had worked on it, who, who was, you know, sort of the creator of Google Translate. Franz had worked on it when he was in grad school in the late 90s and early 2000s. He wrote a paper in 2003 that mm. uh, was really quite good and but wasn't people didn't really cite it. And he and I were having lunch one day and I was asking him about this paper. And he said, I really think this was always a good idea and, and somebody should work on it because that paper should have more citations. So, um, so I, so I kind of thought, well, that's, if he thinks it's a good idea, maybe it's something we ought to go investigate a bit more. And, um, so that was, you know, that turned into the research project of like really restarting this thread of research on interactive machine translation. And like, there, there never really was a thought of starting a company. It was just, you know, this thing that we call human in the loop now, like getting that to get, getting that to work. So from a, from a tech perspective, the latency I remember in the early days was an issue. I mean, is, is a is that still an issue, or or has it been solved, or what, what are some of the other key issues when like you really live interact with with uh, mach, uh, machine translation? Yeah, um, there there's some really interesting engineering issues that come up, and I think that this, you know, they're they're sort of in the research setting. Nobody had really gotten a system to work that demonstrated that it could make people faster and could make them more accurate. So we got, mm. we got the, those results in, in the research setting. So then we have this research prototype and then it was like, well, how do you, how do you enable people to, to use that? 
And there are two problems that you have when you deploy a system like this. And the two key things that it does is it does self-training. So it learns as you use it and it's interactive. So when you type, it predicts, it, it retranslates every time you type a word. Yeah. Um, so you have two problems there. One is synchronization of the updates uh, as you have multiple people working on the same model. And then you have latency, as you rightly point out, because um, if you're typing, you, you have a budget of about 200 milliseconds. Um, otherwise, the system feels sluggish. And 200 milliseconds, this is like, you know, a quarter of the circumference of the world, uh, you know, at the speed of light. So the speed of light starts to become a problem. And, um, and so this is enabled by, um, uh, you know, these, you know, public cloud. Now you have multi-regional, uh, you have bunches of regions that you can run in. Um, and so the engineering challenge is to have a system that runs, uh, in multiple regions around the world. So it's near users and it can be responsive, but then it can also coordinate global updates. So you have a globally consistent, uh, system that's learning. And that's, that's been an engineering challenge for, a really interesting one for you know five years now, and and the system is quite fast globally in all the regions that we run in. I love the uh, just sorry. I love the when sp the speed of light becomes a problem. That's uh, <laughs> that's that's a good quote. It's yeah, a nice sorry. problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so when you're thinking about some of those problems or removing some of those hurdles, I mean, who are you? What kind of people are you engaging? What kind of profiles of employees are, are you bringing on board both um on the development side and then also as you as you sort of scale further um like bringing on kind of business people etc who's on the team really who's on board with Lilt at the moment well the uh i mean i think these systems are quite complicated to build and it's still the case although you know neural network approaches to uh, building machine translation systems have sort of broadened the number of people working working in this area. Like the old statistical systems, they were very idiosyncratic, the way that they were trained, the way that they were built. And there was just a small group of people that, um, you know, that built them. Um, now more people uh, build them because the models and architectures that are used are used for lots of different um, tasks. And so a broader array of people that are just generally good machine learning people can work on them. Um, but there's still, I think there's still, a, you know, quite a bit of, uh, you know, sort of black magic to, to get them to work correctly. So the, the core of the team is, is, is still a research team. We have about 15 researchers split between San Francisco and Berlin, um, that build the core technology. Um, and then all, all around that are an engineering team that builds the application infrastructure, um, and all of the user facing, um, uh, software. Um, and then as we've become a service provider, I think a lot of the change in the past, you know, two years or so has been adding in, um, a services team, um, and adding in a sales team that, uh, knows how to sell in this industry. So it's kind of a merging between software technology people, uh, and then the sort of domain knowledge of how to, sell um language services in the enterprise and that has uh we have you know an interesting dynamic internally uh as these two groups of people that ordinarily don't interact with each other uh do we actually have uh every month there's a services research uh staff meeting where they meet and they talk about <laughs> about problems and these are two groups of people that ordinarily would not have the opportunity to interact. And it's really well attended and people, people like get really excited about this. So, so I think that's a, that's a good thing. But was that, was that an, a kind of a reaction to, as you took the business from like really pure SaaS, right. And then added the services layer on top, obviously that expanded the market dramatically. Was that kind of a reaction to the dynamics that were bubbling up and then just making sure that these two parts of the business really kind of interact very well because it must have been challenging, right? Going from SaaS, pure SaaS tech, and then, you know, adding the service component, kind of the more conventional uh, sales and marketing structure on top of it. Um, yes, a services business is very different uh, operationally than a software business. Um, but I think there's tremendous power in these uh, you know, what are known as technology enabled services businesses in that you can build 
the process and the software at, in parallel and do that in an agile fashion. And that gives you a tremendous operational lever. Um, it's much more challenging to coordinate, but, um, I think when you're trying to, um, when you're trying to automate what's historically been a, you know, a function that's very, very manual, you sort of have to do both at the same time. Um, it's, it's not sufficient to just build the technology and then assume that a service is going to adapt to it. Um, and I think yeah. in lots of different industries, entrepreneurs are finding that this is true. Kind of from a personal, from a CEO point of view, like were there particular challenges that you remember from going from kind of the visionary tech to kind of a, the CEO of a growth services company that's now employing like hundreds of staff? Um, well, I, I think that as the company starts to grow and get larger, the, the, th the, a bigger part of, of this job becomes ensuring that we have a, you know, a strong company culture and, uh, combating complacency, um, and ensuring that we continue to move, move quickly and innovate. And I think that's the real trick. And that comes down to, yeah, hiring and company culture. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think when we're thinking about this tech-enabled uh, language services, or uh, it recalls when we had um, Tom Tungas from Redpoint, who's one of your investors, mm -hmm. back at um, speaking at SlaterCon, I think we said pre in pre-pandemic days uh, about a year and a half ago, um, but he was talking back then about the investment thesis that they were operating or running at the time based on this AI agency, which, mm -hmm. um, I mean, as I understand it, it's sort of a question of looking at the layer of the economy that's occupied by sort of outsourced service providers or agencies and then you know you think about law or accounting and these kind of um, very manual um, traditionally manual professional services and looking at what part of that work can be automated and therefore delivered at a lower cost so I mean as it pertains to localization and translation I mean how do you see localization and translation fitting in in into that spectrum and do you think there's still a lot of work being done you know by LSPs by translators that's not yet automated that that could be really by the current state tech oh yeah i mean it's like it's it's a question of unit economics and you know it it 20 cents or word or whatever you know the big agencies are are charging you know for a single eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that works out to 60 to 80 dollars that's what businesses are paying right now. Um, and with technology, you know, we've cut that in half. That's still, that's still a lot of money. Um, and until we can get that down to a dollar or 50 cents or something like that, uh, we haven't solved the problem. Um, and the problem is making it possible for everybody to have the same experience that you and I are having speaking English. And that's just not true right now. Um, if you navigate pretty much any company's website or just go around the internet, just flick it into Korean and click a few links and then you get kicked back into English. That's the problem that needs to be solved. Um, and it's an operational problem. Um, it's a efficiency problem and it's not a problem that can be fixed with hiring, which is the traditional solution in a manual, you know, a manual approach. There, there just aren't enough translators in the world for the amount of information that there is. So there has to be a technology enabled solution if we want to live in a world where everybody has the same experience, irrespective of the language that they speak. So let's go a bit to the, the kind of the engine of this all, the, the, the MT. I mean, we, we frantically try to keep up to date with what's going on and like the current state of the art in machine translation. But from, from where you are at, uh, where you're at, what are some of the most exciting developments right now? I mean, we, we keep saying like low resources and all of this, but do you have anything that stands out in 2021? Um, well, our team mostly, I mean, so, you know, the, the transformer and it's, Variance is the dominant architecture, not just within machine translation, but more broadly in NLP and, and in sequence modeling. So that 
you know, that hasn't really changed since that paper was published in July of 2017. Hmm. Um, but I think that our team in particular is focused on domain adaptation to, to model learning. Um, and we've had some tremendous improvements in, in that. So we track what we track in production as our translators are working is next word prediction accuracy, um, which means as they're typing, the system proposes a next word. How often do they pick that versus typing something uh, differently? Um, and at the beginning of last year, so at the beginning of 2020, it was, you know, right in the sort of 60% range. Um, and the, the figure from last month was 78%. So wow. that means that the system is, you know, getting eight out of 10 words right that are being, um, predicted. And, um, now people are still reading every word. Um, but th this is a meaningful improvement in, um, in, in how much, you know, work the, is, is the machines are doing to augment what people do. Um, and that doesn't come at the expense of people. We're hiring lots of translators right now. Um, but it makes it possible for each one of them to do multiple times the amount of work per day that, uh, that they would ordinarily do. And, and that's how we amplify the very limited and constrained human resources that we have, um, to be able to, uh, make more information available. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how are you scaling then? Because you mentioned sort of enterprise sales and this enterprise setup. How are you scaling with uh, established localization or enterprise localization buyers that are maybe used to a more traditional way of approaching localization from pricing to, you know, the whole, the whole thing really? Well, I think the, there's not, I mean, our solution is, you know, we've tried to make it as easy to adopt as possible. Um, and so that means if you have a translation management system and you want to keep that, that's wonderful. We can plug into that. If you don't want a translation management system and you want us to integrate directly with all of your business systems, that's also wonderful. We can do that. Um, we have an account, you know, we have a customer surface that looks very much like a, like a service provider. Um, you know, you have an account manager and what we call a services strategist, who's your linguistic resource and then a solutions architect. Um, so, so a lot of that would be familiar. Um, I think the, I think the bigger issue is, um, just, just, uh, that historically, I think people who run localization, they're, they, one of the main things that they optimize on is risk mitigation. And um, I think one of the biggest barriers to entry in this industry is just simply that people don't change things unless they're compelled to. And this presents a barrier for new technologies, new processes, new ideas. And that's the single thing that I would like to see change is um, more openness to new ideas and to innovation. Hmm. Hmm. And, and also, like we were talking about kind of on the geekier side of the machine translation, but when you talk to to end clients, right, the marketing people, the, those global marketing teams, like they talk about, you know, global customer experience, they kind of take it a little bit from a from a broader perspective. So like, how can we kind of, I don't know, elevate that conversation around uh, localization so it becomes kind of part of this bigger picture and we we talk in the same lingo to these people like is, is you know is that something that that you're focusing on it is i think that language should be thought about as a competency of customer experience um so what do i mean by that companies spend a bunch of time on customer experience because the world is really competitive and there are lots of alternatives. And um, so one way that you can differentiate is the degree to which you personalize the, the experience for each customer um, so that you can build loyalty um, with your customer base. And um, one way to not build loyalty is, for example, consider I buy a Toyota and all of the gauges uh, and all of the, uh, you know, the dashboard and the instruments and the display, those are all in Japanese. And I can't, I can't change that. Um, that doesn't make me feel like 
sort of a high value, you know, customer of, of Toyota. And that's how, um, a lot of, you know, digital experiences are on the internet. And I think when you move up from localization into the strategic level of thinking about customer experience, well, then you need to think about what's the experience of the customer when they go to the website, when they use the app, the support site, when they call into support, all the different components, the touch points of where you interact with a business. And is that consistent in the same way that it is for English? And I think for most businesses, it just really isn't. And so yeah. um, localization yeah. is is kind of a function box that you put documents into or, you know, and you get documents out of. It's not a strategic function that helps a business stitch all of these things together. Um, there's an operational and strategic element to that. And I, I think that's that's where language is properly situated in the enterprise. Mm. It's, I mean, it's fascinating, I think, to think about how, well, the potential that localization has if it is truly thought about as a strategic element. I mean, and is there a way or, or how do you think that LSPs can help raise the profile of localization within these enterprise organizations? I mean, is it a case of sort of helping the localization leaders uh, have a seat or access to the executive table or how, how does that happen really that localization gets elevated to a to a strategic level do you think well i i think that it has to be uh i mean it's sort of the responsibility i think as a service provider you know we don't we're not employees of the business so i think right. a lot of the sort of when the localization job is focused on vendor management, there's just not going to be any change affected internally. Um, and, but when that job is transformed to one into a strategic enabler of other parts of the business, um, and the language that's used is one of, um, customer experience and growth. Um, that's, that's the language of like, I mean, every business wants to grow. That's what they're designed to do. So if you can, if you can um, present a business case in those in those terms um, with data to support that business case, then I think that's how uh, people, you, you know, this this can be thought of differently in the enterprise. Hmm. And and is there data also to support that that you know when you're talking about sort of return on investment or value add for clients? I mean how how are people looking at this in, in a tangible way when you're building that kind of business case? What, what really speaks to, to customers, do you think? Yeah. So our, uh, our research team last year, we built this, we built this, uh, it's kind of a prototype product right now, but we use it for some of our customers and it, um, it connects to, it does two things. It crawls, uh, websites and it, then it connects to, um, uh, an analytics product like Google analytics. And, uh, it shows, um, it shows, um, it, it can show for like a page. If you show that in English and you show that in another language, uh, differences in engagement. Um, and the results are really strong. Um, and even in surprising cases where you think like, uh, we have a customer that's a, a software company and you sort of think like all software engineers speak English. Cause like, 20 years ago, like most programming languages didn't even support Unicode. So you just had to, you had to speak English. But it turns out if you give software engineers the opportunity to read things in their native language, well, then they'll just do it. And, um, you can actually prove that. And then when you prove it visually and in a data oriented way, then it's not a difficult case to make to expand that experience to, to other, uh, to other languages. But, you know, Definitely. going into a business meeting and saying, Oh, well, we have these LQA metrics or, you know, like we have this cost basis or something like nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> do you think generally, where do you see the kind of the improvement adoption? I don't know, or improvement trajectory of this all. I mean, I'm, I'm a native German speaker and I, I'm really, I'm sensing that companies are starting to figure this out a lot better than it was five years ago. Like it used to be all this kind of, almost like German, but in English sentence structure and syntax and grammar. And now yeah. some of them really make it truly like localized. And I, I feel like it's, it speaks to me a lot better. Like 
and where do you see this this heading over the next five years? Do you feel it's going to be like companies will expect or uh, customers on the internet, they will really expect like a quasi-perfect native adopted um, quality or, you know, how fast will, will we see this? It's a little bit of a convoluted question, but uh, I don't know. No, it's a, it's a good question. And I will give you a non-scientific and entirely anecdotal answer, um, which good. makes me slightly <laughs> uncomfortable, but uh, I, I'll give it anyway, which is that in the time that we've been doing this, What's been most surprising to me is that the rate at which MT is getting better is, is extraordinary over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, but the rate at which companies' um, quality expectations uh, are increasing is going up at least as fast. And so, um, and by by quality, really this when you really get into this, what it, what most companies are talking about is their, their sort of brand voice or their copy editing guidelines. Um, and historically companies spend a lot of time writing their English copy editing and guidelines. And then, and then it sort of goes through this localization meat grinder and it comes out the other side. as like generic yes. German or something like that. And the real opportunity is to have that degree of, uh, you know, um, specificity and precision in the authoring of the text, both on the, the source side and the target side. And that's just really hard to do with, with automation. Um, and so I think that that's kind of a frontier is that yes, now systems can generate outputs that are both fluent and adequate, but are they preferred? No, I, yeah, I, you, totally understood the question uh and and i really think this is also a massive opportunity for the language industry tech enabled right that when these quality expectations rise then people just won't be happy with that you know semi-okay german anymore and they will well yeah. all these other guys have this perfect you know german that speaks to the consumer like why are we not getting this so i think it's a exactly it's a right. massive opportunity yeah um Quick change of topic. Uh, you guys raised some money. Um, I think it's like Series B was the last series about one and a half years ago. How is it? I mean, just some, I don't know, some, some information around how is it to raise capital for a localization translation related startup, a tech company? And like, what's the perception out there in, in the VC community about this, this space generally? Well, I think that there's been, uh, you know, historically going back in a number of years, there was less investment in this industry. Um, but the last year or two, um, there's been more venture investment, more private equity investment and more outside interest. And I think this is, this is really good. Um, um, more, you know, the, the objective that we have, if Lilt achieves anything, it's catalyzing change towards, um, all, uh, all products and services being available in all languages. And we're not going to achieve that on, you know, like the small amount of capital that we've, that we've raised. Like, we'll, you know, we'll, we're, the business is growing and we'll do more. Um, but we need lots of, lots of companies and lots of capital to catalyze that change in the world and lots of investments. So I think this is generally a good thing that there's more outside interest in the language industry and people are building companies. And they're building technology to, uh, you know, in service of this this mission, which is uh, really, you know, why we we started this company and what we hope to achieve with it. Do, do you think? How would you weight this? Like the general kind of, you know, availability of capital versus maybe a little bit more excitement around the industry uh, in, in in the investment community. Do you think it's kind of fifty fifty, or is or they generally just is it generally just a lot of money out there, and some of it is chasing? Uh, localization companies, or is it really also genuine excitement about the space? Um, well, there is a lot of money out there. That's true. Um, uh, and, but I also think that there's more interest in, in more investors uh, now have this sort of um, tech enabled thesis than yeah than a few years ago, because I think the experience of building these machine learning companies is that enterprises need a lot of help with change. 
and adopting these technologies is quite hard. So you just end up building a services function to drive adoption. And that leads to a very different business model than like a pure SaaS business. And I think that more, you know, more companies are being built this way. And therefore, um, there's more examples of this. And that's generally helps investors develop a thesis. Yeah. And when you're pursuing that goal of uh, making you know, products and services available for everybody everywhere. What what kind of features does that depend on? And thinking specifically about Lilt, what have you added um, in the past 12 to 18 months, really, That's that's been some of the key developments for the roadmap? Yeah, um, I'll give two examples. The first is we have a point of view with our integration with the enterprise, which is connector first. And let me describe what we mean by that. Um, I think 10 years ago, the business systems that people used, be they content management systems, source code repositories, document management systems, all of the you know generally enterprise content management, those systems didn't have really great multilingual support. Um, and so then you ended up needing these like big pieces of middleware, which we call translation management systems, to kind of augment the deficiencies of those systems and do workflow stuff. But today, the systems that companies are using, they have awesome multilingual support. And so what we've been building towards is building the multilingual capability directly into those systems. Um, and so you can think about it like in much the same way you use Google Translate. It's integrated directly with your phone. It's integrated with your browser. Um, it's integrated with your email and you have it accessible right there where you're doing content authoring. That's how we're building out our enterprise integrations. And so that means, you know, we'll connect to a TMS if you already have that and that's your integration point or we'll build directly into your systems if you're in the process of replatforming and doing digital transformation. Um, so we've gone from, you know, just like a couple of these connectors to, I don't know, a lot now, um, mm. 30, 40 of them. And we have um, a whole team internally working on building these out. So I think that's one big change that's made it much easier to for companies to access language and do, you know, implement multilingual workflows than before. Um, the second part is that I think internally when you companies are wanting to sort of go to market faster and move move faster and so the internal pieces of the production process uh to transform a you know a piece of content from one language into another um one of the bottlenecks is QA and so for the last year and a half we've been working on um um this uh what we call auto review. It's it's basically a grammatical error correction system um, that starts mm -hmm. to automate part of what a traditional reviewer would do. We spent a lot of time building support for the translation part of the production process and very little time trying to augment the review part of the um, process. And that, that actually takes quite a bit of time, um, especially when you get into um, like having internal stakeholders review things. And that actually, you know, to your point earlier, Florian, about the achieving the the preferred translation and like the brand voice in the other language, that's where a lot of that happens at the review phase. So the team has been building this auto review product that um, is we're going to publish a paper on it in the next couple of months and then hopefully get it into production later this year. But um, I think that's going to increase quality and then also, um, you know, fix what's been sort of a production bottleneck for a long time. And um, so look out for that. So that that would be, I mean, when you say internal stakeholder, that's not on your side. That's like the in-country marketing director somewhere in China that then gets the content and just wants to adjust it a little bit additionally. Yeah, because data leakage happens right there. Like those tweaks that they make are really important. And you want to yeah. capture that and you want to learn from that. Um, yeah. And so that's where that's where putting another learning system in place that can learn from that is is really crucial, I think. Yeah, that is that's a cool feature, gotta say. Um, 
crystal ball outlook. So I, I got this new thesis, Spence, that uh, we're kind of entering a super cycle. Uh, things are going quite well for, for the language industry and probably will so for the next three, four, five years. Um, how, how do you see the next two, three, four years in this industry? Do, would you agree that like looks quite strong? I think that the the pandemic certainly provided uh in you know it's it's a horrible situation and a lot of people have you know been hurt and suffered so let me qualify what I'm about to say but um I think one consequence of the pandemic has been that more companies now um are focusing on their online and digital experiences and as a consequence of that thinking they're also realizing that they need to speak to their customers in their own language so in the past you know three to six months it seems like we've just had a number of conversations that are more strategic in nature and there are these sort of digital initiatives going on um, to pivot companies more broadly, not just those in, in Silicon Valley or in tech hubs towards having comprehensive online presences. And that's, that's really good. Like that's the exogenous event that will, you know, accelerate, accelerate the need for language technology and services. And, um, I think that presents a lot of opportunity for, um, for those of us, you know, working in this field. Great. Well, Spence, that was fascinating. Thank you so much. I know we have a busy day ahead, so uh, let's uh, let's leave it here and uh, hope to uh, catch up in real life at some point still this year. Maybe. Maybe there's a chance to meet at the conference. So. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye.